What does it mean to be a conservative now? What is the purpose of a conservative? It is to conserve, to rescue those things worth rescuing, to save the things that we love and let go of the things that don't work. Our task is to stand in front of the leftist and institutionalist steamroller and protect what we can and save what we must. Every single day, a conservative will take a beating from the fashionable snobs on the left. They're cozy in their lawlessness. They're, they subject us to a level of harassment and mockery that they, they couldn't even imagine, let alone withstand. To them, so many people in America are dumb, useless, bigoted, any other number of ridiculous accusations. And it doesn't have to be just, it could be somebody on the left that disagrees with them. They're dumb and ridiculous and racist. What they don't realize is that without something that I think is at the center of conservatism, they should be at least, individuals and individual rights, civilization collapses. What then would they do if you won the zero-sum game with nobody left to destroy? Today's guest is one of the brave souls that is standing in front of that tank. After she spoke at the National Conservative Conference last fall, Jacobin Magazine said, who is this woman and what the hell is going on here? They went on to say that she uses, quote, the language of war and enmity and victory at all costs and subordinating means to ends. Wow, she sounds dangerous. She sounds kind of like the left in some ways, the way you described her. Well, she has plenty of credentials that make her a threat to the left. And a lot of people will misunderstand her, but she is clear. She has had uh, directorial jobs in the House and the Senate. She's worked with Senator Rand Paul, Pat Toomey, Mike Lee. Okay. She certainly currently serves as the senior director of policy at the Conservative Partnership Institute and co-authored the book Conservative, Knowing What to Keep with Senator uh, Jim DeMint. She is... Um, she is a senior tech columnist also for The Federalist. She has her thumb on the monster known as Big Tech. We talk about it in today's podcast. She just wrote an incredible article that caught everybody's intention uh, and, and mine. This is why I wanted to get her on. The 1980s called. They want their foreign policy back and Republicans finally to wake up. That's what it's called. It is scathing. It has some backbone, which is exactly what we need right now. Please welcome... Today's guest, Rachel Bavard. You know, every day as we dance that country dance just a little closer to that cliff's edge, only God knows when we're going to plunge over the side. Uh, or maybe, maybe we don't. You can never know the future for sure, but sometimes it's pretty certain that it doesn't look so good. Right now, doesn't look so good. We as a world are facing massive shortages, energy, heat, food, and maybe sooner rather than later. This is the reason why I believe that um, uh, you should listen to the farmers because they're telling us what to expect. Be prepared. My Patriot Supply. They are the nation's largest preparedness company. They have millions of customers. And right now, if you go to MyPatriotSupply.com, you can save $250 off a three-month emergency food kit. It's fast. They ship for free. Most importantly, they ship discreetly. 
Keep this one to yourself. You know what I'm saying? I want you to go to My Patriot Supply right now. Save $250 at MyPatriotSupply.com. Fast approaching the day when you're going to need to depend on yourself. MyPatriotSupply.com. Hello, Rachel. Hey, how are you? Have we ever met before? I can't believe we haven't met. We've met one time, but it was like three or four years ago at this point okay. when Demit and I were in your studio. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. It was um, a while ago. <laughs> because you've worked with everybody. You worked with um, Jim Demint. You worked with uh, um, Mike Lee. Uh, I think Rand Paul as well. I mean, you're you're heavy yeah. hitter. Heavy hitters. Around. Oh, thanks. Yeah. So. Um, you wrote a article the other day, the 80s called They Want Their Foreign Policy Back and Republicans Finally to Wake Up. And I read that and I thought to myself, I think I completely agree with you. But there is so much swirling around um, that is vying for attention for the conservatives that I'm mm-hmm. I'm I'm cautious. I want to always talk to people before I go. You know what? I think this is a really good idea. Um, so you said that, uh, you know, you weren't even born when Reagan was in office and, uh, you know, we got to get over Reagan. Explain what, what you're talking about in your article. So I think it's fair to say there's so much going on and I want to point out, so that column was an adaptation of a speech for which I only had 10 minutes. So there's like (laughs) so much more that I could have said there. But I think, you know, in this sort of new right project that I'm working on, it's this idea not that Reagan was bad, right, or Reagan wasn't a good president. It's just that Reagan is not eternal and he's not immortal. And the conditions under which he was successful are not our conditions now. And I think this is especially true, you know, even today, looking at why Liz Truss failed is sort of a case in point, right? She was trying to make economic policy for a, a type of economy that existed 40 years ago. And the global order right now is being reshaped, right? Neoliberalism is over. Okay, so- So how do we make policy for that? Right, and so uh, Reagan, I, I completely agree that conservatives kind of live in the past. Um, and then by definition, you kind of do that. Um, but they live in the past. There isn't any really new idea. And quite honestly, the only part of going backward in time that I want is our history, good, bad and ugly, because mm-hmm. we can learn from it. Our Constitution, Declaration of Independence and Bill of Rights. Everything else, we've screwed it up. And I want a new vision. Um, yeah. But Reagan, the reason why Reagan because I lived through it, that he was popular um, was not because he defeated things or turned the economy around, because he could connect with the principles and ideals of America. Do the, are those yeah. still relevant? That's the great question, because right now we're living in a country, I think, where we don't even agree on the foundational things. No, we don't. Right. We don't agree on sex. (laughs) We don't agree on basic foundational questions over whether a girl is a boy or, you know, religion and its role in shaping the country, traditional values. All these things are up for just debate and dispute in a way that they were. I think it's I think it's even deeper than that. 
we don't agree on the Bill of Rights anymore. Good right. portion we don't doesn't agree on even know it. Yeah. And uh, and then the there's probably half the country that does know it. And they're like, hey, yeah, yeah. I mean, we love the Constitution, but we got things to do. I don't know if we're even mm-hmm. a constitutional republic today. Well, it's, it's interesting, this question of, of that, that particular question. I touched on it a little bit in that piece, but my friend Russ Vogt has written a column for the American mind saying we are actually post-constitutional. Yeah, I think right? so. If you looked how the left operates. Yeah. And so how does the right respond to that? And his vision is that you actually embrace radical constitutionalism, like you double down on what the Constitution really means, but that requires us to upend, you know, bad precedent that we've beholden ourselves to. Yeah. Right. And I think he, he calls it like, you know, uh, bad bad precedent and bad statesmen have led us into this place where, you know, he's talking about how his group looked at how do you constitutionally declare an invasion, these states at the border? How do you declare an invasion? He's like, that's in the constitution. You can make a constitutional argument that the state has a responsibility to do that. He's like, but you would be shocked the amount of conservative lawyers that push back against that because, oh, the precedent doesn't let us go there. And he's like, no, no, no. (laughs) I have to tell you. The stakes are this high. Yeah. Precedent is not how you judge what's constitutional. That'll just dogpile bad rulings after bad rulings. uh, the problem is when you're doing that, you're saying all these, you know, um, conservative uh, lawyers. Look, this this we're living in an age of radicalism. It is all mm-hmm. radical. If you want to restore the Bill of Rights as our centerpiece, it's going to take radicals because it's gone so you're, you, you are really fighting for a new system of government that people haven't seen in 100 years because that hasn't been followed. And then it's just been trashed in the last 10. So if we can agree on the principles of Declaration of Independence, Bill of Rights, the Constitution will allow us to rebuild it. But. I don't know if you'll never get Mitch McConnell. You'll never get Mitt Romney. You'll never get these Republicans. It's going to take it. I think it's going to take people who either think very young along with the very young um, or it's just going to take the very young because these people think like it's 1950. That's and I think that is sort of the paradox the conservative movement is living in to some extent, because as conservatives or conservatism broadly, right, we're not radicals by definition, but we're living in a moment where we are forced to be radicals to return to or to uncover, you know, Kirk said, you know, find the old values and old virtues and bring them back into the light. That's where I think we're living. And that requires a certain amount of radicalism from the movement, because to your point, the and I think this is true of all the political right in Washington. They just don't understand this. They do not understand the stakes of the moment we're living in. They do not understand the, this is a fight for the soul of America, that if we don't get this right, America is not going to be America anymore. It's going to be some sort of, you know, Rachel, technologically. How do, they not, how do they not know that? How do they not know that? I think it's a willful denial to some extent. They've been enriching themselves on right. the back of the old system for so long that it's it's self-preservation. Acknowledging that it needs to change is is cutting their own legs out and admitting that they have been part of the problem and they just are unable to do it and unwilling to do it. So That's why they need to go. <laughs> that it is. Um, 
I just always assume, and I'm glad you said they were, ent- were enriching their themselves. I, I look at the things that they should do if they win the Senate and the House, and I'm not sure they'll do it because it will come back on them as well. I mean, it's yes. it's not everybody, but a lot of them are in on the game and they just want to take it at a slower pace than the left. We'll take, you know, just as a small example, you know, how entangled we are with China. Mm -hmm. How entangled our economy is, is what prevents us from taking this threat seriously. And I see it as a a global order changing Mm -hmm. threat. We cannot, and we are functionally incapable of addressing that as a legislature because so many of these guys and and women, right, uh, are tied into making so much money from that system. Um, and that's why Wall Street's entangled. That's why the hedge funds are, are are so tied into it. It's why the technology firms want to be over there. We can't take on China because everyone's making too much money from China. And yeah. that's that's a huge insurmountable problem right now, unless we dump over the leadership. In you can't even talk about it. I mean, we just sold right. the port of Miami to China. <laughs> it just happened this week. Nobody's talking about that. <laughs> Yeah. Really? And it's honestly, it's been the trend of financialization, I think, which has been the focus of you know many Republican and Democratic leaders for the last 30 years. Just this high finance, you know, production that doesn't actually make anything for the economy, but it makes a lot of people rich. And it's that global financialization that we need to pull back, I think, and really take a critical look at. And we are unable, again, to do that because too many people are making money from it. So I do think it's going to take a new generation of leaders that aren't connected to that old system and are willing to kind of call it out and call it for what it is and change it. But that's got to happen fast because we don't have a lot of time. So many people um, think like Rachel, think like I do, um, and know that we have quite a task on our hands and everybody is going to be needed on the field. Everybody needs to be. You can't sit in the stands and go, well, I'm just going to see which one's going to. If you do that, you're going to be on the wrong side. And we need you on the field. If you think I'm in too much pain, I can't do anything. I can't even concentrate. I'm sure you've tried everything. I know I did when I was like you. And um, I tried something I never thought would work. I told my wife, I'll try it for three weeks. That's what Relief Factor recommends. Try it for three weeks. If it's not working, then stop taking it. But 70% of the people who try it go on to order more month after month. You want a drug-free, natural way to get your life back? Just try this, please. ReliefFactor.com. Get in the game. ReliefFactor.com. So I think that there is, you know, these countries, England, they're fighting with austerity. And I think... There's a portion of American America and um, uh, they are either the the classical liberal that believes in, you know, rights um, and has seen that we've just been a growth. We become France in the 1700s and makeup and and just talking nonsense at, you know, parties in Versailles. We're ugly. We've become ugly. Those people and conservatives would just like to reset to a a normal, reasonable lifestyle where you can get rich or not, but that's not what society is all about. And um, I think the left is destroying us 
trying to get there while they're taking all of the money. Um, and, and I think if we were asked to and we had a real plan that would say, look, we have got to reset all of this and it's going to mean we all, you know, take it on the chin for a while. I think we would do that if we knew that there was no way out of this financial disaster. But they're not including us in any of this and they're denying it most times. I think that's the really frustrating point about this moment is that we all see what's happening, right? I think any reasonable person living in America today understands you know, the attacks and the assaults that the country is under and the sort of economic precipice that we're living in. Well, at the same time, right, you can't, the price of your, your child's innocence is being corrupted in their public school. Yeah. Conservatives are being debanked by major institutions. You know, they're being cut off from the avenues to capitalism, to public life uh, for, you know, saying the wrong thing on Twitter. I mean, this isn't hyperbole or exaggeration. This is actually what's happening. And yet they are told by their representatives, where again, the great American experiment was that our self-government would reflect our concerns, our self-government would act on our behalf. And yet they are being told by those people that your concerns are stupid, uh, that isn't really happening, uh, we don't have time to do that right now, uh, maybe we'll get to it, you know, and, and we, we will take incremental steps to address this problem. And it's, it's infuriating. You know, and I think why you see people so, you know, the left talks about, you know, how angry the right is and how radical they are. Well, they're angry because of this. They're angry mm -hmm. because where is their outlet? Self-government is supposed to be responsive and it's supposed to be their outlet. Mm -hmm. Self-government is what prevents violence in the streets, mm -hmm. right? It's the cathartic element of American government and yet it's not functioning. And so I do think we are, are getting to a dangerous point that if you don't have that catharsis, if you don't see yourself reflected in your own you know, representative government, what are you to do as an individual person? I think this election is absolutely critical, but I'm not sure. And I, I've said this to people. I've, I've said, you've got to go out and vote. You've got to go out and vote. And I think people um, get that message. But so many say, I have zero faith the Republicans will do anything. I just want to stop the madness, but mm -hmm. they're not going to fix it. And I think that's probably true. And that makes me tell my friends in Washington, pitchforks and torches will come for you because the status quo is not good enough. You have to stop it and reverse it. So how do we do that? What is to start with this define the new right? So the new right is, I would stay, say, still a nascent and ascendant movement among, I think, younger conservatives that uh, our established sort of policymaking on the right has failed. Now, I say in that speech, I think new right isn't necessarily a, a great moniker because there's been a number of new rights. And in reality, a lot of the policies and ways of thinking the quote unquote new right pushes now is simply the conservatism of you know Robert Taft or Calvin Coolidge or sort of a, a historical reemergence of that way of thought. So it's not new in that sense. Mm -hmm. It's old. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I think it's, it's again, a recognition that, you know, from where I sit, conservatism as a set of philosophies is dynamic, 
right? And it's it's resurgent always because it's flexible enough to meet the moment. And I think what's what I have looked at in Washington is a conservative movement that's become fat and lazy and attached to dogma. And they've they've disrespected conservatism by pushing it into these set of policy prescriptions that have become so rigid and ossified that any movement away from it is like, well, you're not a conservative. When reality, conservatism is supposed to conserve the things that we care about, which is nation, family, community, human dignity. And by definition, when you attach yourself to those ideals, the policies are always going to look a little bit different because the threats are different, Mm -hmm. right? And the moment that we are living in right now, I would say, and again, um, I'm not 40, but I'm like mid thirties. So it's the, from in my lifetime, I would say it is the, the highest stakes moment for these set of ideals that I have ever seen. Oh, and I, I will tell they are you, under attack in ways I've never witnessed. I was born in the sixties. So I've seen a lot and I've, yeah, I mean, I really thought we were going to be vaporized in my teens. I, I remember waiting because a decision was being made at the White House. I remember that. Um, but I felt secure that mm-hmm. even if that happened, those ideals would be preserved and we would move on. This now, I think our stuff could be preserved, but all of our ideals, our meaning gone because they're right. they are they have destroyed our history they've destroyed our traditions i go to i go to a fourth of july now that used to be so moving for me i almost hate fourth of july now because it seems empty and um it's just it just it's it's meaningless now um you see the flag i've never had a flag on my set from the beginning, because I saw after 9-11, everybody saying you're not an American if you have if you don't have a flag on your lapel. And I thought this is nuts. That thing, that flag is going to be something that turns into something that it's not. You know what I mean? All of our traditions, everything has been destroyed and nobody is talking about how do we pick it up except the 1950s way, <laughs> the Mitch McConnell yeah. way. Well, this is where I think the new right distinguishes itself in some ways is that it acknowledges everything that you're saying, right? It acknowledges that our way of life is being destroyed or has been destroyed by, I would say, like an over-reliance on the market as the end in and of itself instead of a means to an end, mm-hmm. you know, a over-focus on religious liberty as opposed to religiosity going away in American society, mm-hmm. right? They go hand in hand, but we've overemphasized one to the exclusion of the other. Um, we've abandoned the institutions. Um, we've seated them to the left. And I think we the fatal conceit there was that, oh, well, the market will correct for the left's long march through the institutions. And that it, it just that has failed. That is a broken way of thinking. And it has led us to this moment where conservatives and conservatism is almost a dissident culture at this point. And so what the new right says is if we accept that premise that we are a dissident culture, we are by definition, we have to be a little bit more radical in our approach. I'd say a lot more radical, frankly. Yeah. And when we get power, when we are given power through our, you know, self-government, we have to use it to actively defend the things that we care about. Okay, so, because- so hang on, hang on, because this is where this is why I wanted to talk to you. 
because this is where it gets dicey. We cannot become everything we despise. And there are a lot of people on the right that, A, are angry and like, oh, you're going to do that to us? Well, I'll show you what that feels like. We are at a place in our society. I, I talked about this in 2006 with a pendulum. It's swinging, that pendulum. We're good in the center. But as it swings one way or the other, left or right, it gets further and further apart until somebody grabs it and says there's too much chaos, there's too much division, and the people cry out for somebody to come down. And quite honestly, after this administration, if the Republicans win, after this administration, if they don't do things, people are going to cry out for somebody to make it stop. So please tell me how, what you mean by if you win, you get power. What, what does yeah. that mean? So this is, I think, the foundational question for the new right. I think you're absolutely right to hone in on it. And as a sort of a nascent movement, I think the new right has to iterate very clearly on what it means here, because it can't be, as you suggest, you know, this. And there's some people on the new right that will say this, like that, that we are now the administrative state, right? Yeah. That we now tell you how to live your life. And Correct. I just don't think that's it's, that's not that's America. Not, it's not America, but I also think it's not, as a practical matter, possible, right? <laughs> even if the even if let's just say conservatives take all three branches of government, the administrative state is still run by Democrats. Like, however you parse it, they are still in charge of the administrative state. So, as a practical matter, I don't think that works. What I have always said is that if the new right obtains power, it has to be a twofold approach of one, obtaining power, but then using that power to one, protect the things that we care about, which is necessarily requiring a defunding of things, a decentralization of things, and a a divestment of things. And what I mean by that is I want to break the elite power centers so that no elite can use them. Right. Our new, from where I sit, and there's many views on this in the new right, because again, it's, it's a very nascent sort of movement at this time and fluid. But from where I sit, we have to break the concentrations of power that exist within the government and within the private sector so that no one can sort of control those anymore. We And 100%. for me, state power, state power is using the government to create a space in which free people can flourish. That's an inherently Lockean idea. And a lot of new right people hate Locke, but I think it's foundational to how our country works and the people that, it, you know, how we all live together. But that requires using the government in a way that historically the right hasn't been, um, hasn't been popular on the right. And what I mean is I'm for strong antitrust enforcement. I think we've been way too lax on how our, our mega corporations have consolidated. You know, when people want to defend these companies as American companies, they're not. They're multinationals yeah. that are interested in one thing, and yeah. that is their own self-interest. Yeah, tell me, and the, they NBA, will sell- tell me the NBA is an, is an American company. Bullcrap. Right. It's, it's, but the same with, you know, tech companies, the same with it. half of our, ba- yeah. you know, major banks and institutions. So, you know, there's a lot of people on the right that say, well, we, you know, we don't want antitrust enforcement. I do. I think that's law enforcement for the market. I think we need to be much more critical of how private power is amassed. If you're a fan of getting high quality meat, it might be time for you to stop shopping at the store. Did you know that 
um, they can put labels on meat that says product of America, but it's actually been shipped in from China. It's kind of scary, but store bought meats get uh, recalled pretty frequently. Just recently, about 44 tons of store meat was recalled for listeria. Product of America. Mm-mm. When you buy meat, fish, chicken, you need to know that it is the best. You need to know that it's coming here. It hadn't been shipped halfway across the earth. And that's why Good Ranchers exists. I've been telling you about them for a while now on the program, and they're a company that I actually believe in. They're trying to do the right thing. They're trying to get you a good piece of seafood or steak, and they're trying to help America rebuild and become more self-reliant and also give you a good deal. Join the tens of thousands of Americans getting 100% American meat delivered to their door. Right now, uh, during Good Ranchers' October feast sale, you'll get two pounds of Wagyu beef and two and a half pounds of their better-than-organic chicken free with any purchase of one of their bundle boxes. So just go over to GoodRanchers.com slash Glenn. That's GoodRanchers.com slash Glenn. Well, here's the one thing um, that people always say. Oh, the founding fathers, they didn't see a time when we went to space. No, they didn't have to. They had certain principles that work anywhere in the universe for any problem. The one thing that I don't think that they really addressed or thought about was that. They never thought a corporation could be more powerful than a government and that it could just rule the world and there's no restrictions on these corporations i don't care you as a grocery store you don't want to serve anybody named glenn fine whatever i'll go to another grocery store but when that grocery store owns all of the grocery stores or a large part of them and influences everyone else No. And especially if it's taking any money from the federal government, then that's the government funding my rights being taken away. This is exact. Yeah. This is the issue, and, and a lot of times I'll debate this issue with progressives who are like, well, you just, then why, why did, can you, did Jack Phillips should bake the cake, right? Bake the cake, bigot, how is this any different? And because of what you just laid out, it's fundamentally different. The issue is one of scale. Right. right? It's, and it's, there's, there's a no, million other cake bakers. There's one massive tech platform. There's three mega banks. Yes. Right. Right. When they start cutting you off, you lose access to public life. Correct. And we've allowed that to happen. That has been a function of policy choices, right. not the market somehow. Well, the, the government, you know, the public private partnership of ESG and all of that stuff, this they have built. Uh, a digital ghetto. I said this a few years ago and I got my head handed to me, but it's true. You in the in, you know, with Hitler, he had to round the Jews up and then put them in a place and then build walls around that place so they couldn't do anything with the outside world. But you go ahead and have your little life here. Well, that's what's happening with mm-hmm. people who I don't care what side you're on. If you disagree with the state and the power, then you're in a digital ghetto. Well, yeah, I'm not I'm not doing anything. Do you You can still drive around? What, really? I, can I have a bank? Can I have a credit card? Can I have social media? Can I speak anywhere? Can I have a job if I don't get vaccinated? 
You've put us in a ghetto. No, I think that's exactly right. And when I started writing on some of these issues a couple of years ago, I used to get in these debates with libertarians who I was writing specifically about the tech platforms, sort of foreshadowing what I thought was going to happen, which is that that you know, these are market access points. And when you start ideologically weaponizing them, you cut people off from the market, right. the downstream effects are gonna be very dangerous. And they would say to me, well, Facebook can't put you in jail. The government is still a bigger threat to your mm -hmm. liberty. The government is can be a threat to your liberty, but as you point out, like we're living in a digital economy, a digital technocracy in many cases. And the ability to cut you off from all the avenues of making money in this country, to being successful, to maintaining a job, to having any kind of social capital at all, it's all completely in private hands and it's increasingly weaponized. And I deal a lot with people too who, who say, well, you know, if, as we saw recently, JP Morgan is unbanking uh, Sam Brownback's Committee for mm -hmm. Religious Liberty, he should just find another bank and we should just build a different bank for conservatives. And it's no. like, okay, there, there is, you know, the alternative economy movement, I think, yes, has some merit, but two things. One, it cannot be scaled up at all quickly enough, mm -hmm. I think, to meet the kind of crisis that we're in. But second, every input in that system is also weaponized, right? right. You saw this with Parler, for instance. Mm -hmm. Remember Parler, the alternative Twitter? Right. It was doing really, really well when it got kneecapped out of existence. And what happened? It wasn't just that they lost access to the app stores, although I would argue that was a huge blow because those are the only two market access points if you are a social media app. If you're not in those app stores, you functionally don't exist. But it was their web hosting service that mm -hmm. they got kicked mm -hmm. off of. Their email provider oh. dropped them. Their lawyers stopped working them, with them. How are you going to build an alternative system when everything you need to make the market work for you is you're cut off from it? And that is what I think, there's no wider acknowledgement of that phenomenon on the right, the established right, right? They're still acting like we live in a country where we all agree on the foundational things, like the market can solve these problems. No, you can't when the market is weaponized this way. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I actually agree with the um, alternative market theory but I also mm -hmm. am smart enough to know, I mean, that's why I built the blaze. It was an alternative to the media. And at the time, the Internet was still the Wild West. OK, and fine. They at that time, you can't be on these platforms. You can't say these things on the mainstream media. OK, I'll come over here. Well, great. Build your own thing then. Not thinking that we would. We did. Everybody's now. And but now that you're effective, now they want to kick you off this and say, well, just you can't use this, build another one. You can't build all the infrastructure. You could in 40 years, but you can't build right. the separate infrastructure. And and all of it, and this is, in my opinion, from the World Economic Forum and the, and the corruption there, it's all connected. So now here's the question. Every law, the way we work now, you know, their bill's this big and uh, nobody reads them except the attorneys. <laughs> nobody really writes them except the people that usually are the on the receiving end of it. They're, they're the ones we're trying to regulate. Well, I don't really know how to regulate. This is why we only have three car companies up until Tesla in America, because FDR went to the big three and say, said what what do we need to do well they regulated everybody out of business who's going to write 
the tech legislation? Who knows it well enough and how do you contain it? This is a very, I think, pressing question, and I don't have any faith in our legislators to be able to I do don't it, either. to be totally honest. Because in, in so many ways, you know, we've technology has outpaced us, right? And, and I think for the last 20 years, the debate in Washington, and I think even across the country, was tech exceptionalism, right? That the tech is just going to push us forward and do great things, and we're never going to have to worry about it. And isn't it great that you can, you know, do all these things? And yeah, your data is everywhere, but that will never come back to bite us ever. Mm-hmm. You know, they can have it. They're good. They're good companies, right? Mm-hmm. They're never going to misuse it. And now we're living in an, a digital economy that has been completely restructured. The internet is not the internet of the 90s, right? It's not the internet I came up in, which was like chat rooms and, you know, just an open forum. It is a balkanized, commercially driven system that's commoditized by people, right? We are the commodity. And we still make policy like it's the internet of the 1990s. And so this is why, you know, down the road, we do need to kind of get control of these companies and what they do with with us and to us. I think that involves, um, thank, frankly, much more stringent regulations on what can be targeted at kids. I think it involves massive legislation on privacy and you know how they keep your data and what they do with it. But I think those are 10 or 15 years down the road. We don't have the technical expertise. What I focused on in the short term is decentralizing the heck out of these companies. Because for me, a lot of the speech concerns, a lot of the privacy concerns, it's all downstream of market power. Right. Right. Google is so powerful because it controls the flow of information for 90% of the world. Right. What Google chooses to suppress or amplify literally shifts opinion around the world. No company should have that much authority. And I care far less what Google does if it's only doing it for 20 percent of the world Mm -hmm. and not 90. Can you imagine any company having 90 percent of the control of water? Can you imagine that? We'd all go crazy. They have 90 percent of the world's information ingoing and outgoing. That's uh, that's right up there with water, but we don't see it that way. No, we don't. And we and we should, because that changes how people take in information, speak to one another. Because remember, Google owns YouTube as well, which is this that Google is the number one search engine in the world. Do you know what the second biggest search engine in the world is? YouTube, also owned by Google. Right. So they control you know, the massive information economy, which involves how we think, how we express ourselves, how we vote, you know, all these things. So to think that somehow, you know, this is just the information ecosystem and there are a thousand flowers blooming is a joke. I mean, people say, oh, well, use DuckDuckGo. (laughs) The fact that DuckDuckGo or Bing exists says nothing to me about the reach of Google's power. They exist and that's it, right? If, if, if just 2% of America is using DuckDuckGo, it doesn't matter because 90% of America is using Google. Correct. So I think you have to break the concentration here. And that's the only thing I'm confident right now that Washington can do in the short term because there's frankly, so there's no expertise. You've watched enough. There's so much mo- more than that. You, you, you know, you've watched enough movies to know I mean, I love people like that, that, you know, that's what happens in the movies. Yeah. And this is probably worse. And what do you think? I mean, movies sell people because they recognize some truth in it occasionally. 
Yeah, this is what happens in the movies. And what happens in the movies is anybody who tries to break up that amount of power and money will be destroyed. Are you telling me that that Skynet was just foreshadowing? (laughs) Yeah, seeing that China there, they actually (laughs) named their monitoring service Skynet. Let me ask you, did the. The leftists after Reagan, they realized they didn't have the corporate boardrooms and you can't win without the corporate boardrooms. So they spent 20 years getting into the corporate boardrooms and we see the effects. However. People think this is a Marxist communist movement. I think those I think I think those people are just the useful idiots. Did the left win or did the worst part of corporatism win? It's almost like they came in to infect and they just taught how, wait a minute, if we destroy this, we can get all the money by using these kinds of ideas and we'll be we'll be the evil corporation in the end, you know, all for the good of people. So who won here? Who's using who? So this is a very interesting question, and I'm curious what you think about let me lay this out and see what you think. So I think the sequencing here is important I, because I think what you just laid out is kind of what happened. And you see this, it's very hilarious to me, like companies, it, so it's so much signaling, right? Companies like Apple are like, throw up this huge Black Lives Matter banner on yeah. you know their homepage. Yeah, yeah. And they're meanwhile, they're like using Chinese slaves. Right. Like it's just, it's, just, it's like so much signaling, right? right? Like, Amazon is like, oh, here are these, you know, 15 movies for Black History Month. You know, don't talk about the fact that we we make our warehouse workers, you know, pee in bottles and they die on the floor. Right. So there's like definitely a component of that. But the other side of it is. And this is where I'm where I'm interested in what you think. I think that the leadership of a lot of these of these corporations, to your point, they're not ideological. They're just sheep. Right. And so they've been led down this line and that's what they'll do. But and I think they're largely Gen X sort of boomer generations. But what concerns me the most is that you have this mid-level management that is completely ideological and woke and, you know, coming out of the universities on just willing to wield power against everyone in really tyrannical ways. And they are ascending to leadership of these companies. And in many ways, the leadership that exists is terrified of them. You know, look no further than the New York Times and what happened to James Bennett and the furor that that newsroom has been in. That's exactly what happened. It was the mid-level, you know, woke tyrants overthrowing their elders. And so my fear is that unless you have the current leadership, the sort of Gen X boomer level, have enough courage to tamp that down, and I'm not sure they do, we will actually see tyrants ascend to these boardrooms. And it won't be the, you know, I'm painting BLM in my cheek while I, you know, exploit my workers. Mm. It will be an actual weaponization of the corporate sector that we have never seen. So it's been 20 years now, two decades ago. Covenant Eyes founder, um, Radihas, faced um faced the same questions many, many people are facing today how can i teach my kids to use the internet with integrity how do i guard 
them. How do I guard my own heart and remain pure online? Used to be you'd have to go in and get something from underneath the counter and then it would spread around the neighborhood. Not now. You can get things that are just downright evil accidentally. So with this mission in mind, Covenant Eyes created their own world-class software and educational resources, which now are used by over a million people. Covenant Eyes wants to help equip parents and grandparents, that's you, with the resources that will help you protect your family. They want to give you a free parenting ebook called Connected. This book explores how a strong family connection can protect children and teens from the dangers of hidden pornography use. It is everywhere. And this this book contains real life stories, practical tips for maintaining or reestablishing connection in your family. This book will help strengthen your relationship with God, your spouse, your children, so that your family can be free of the evils that just spill into your house. Get your free copy of Connected by texting Glenn, G-L-E-N-N, to 66866. That's Glenn to 66866. I think you're accurate on that. I I think that's absolutely right. Uh, And I think, you know, you've read The Fourth Turning, I'm sure. The Fourth Turning talks about Mm -hmm. the Gen X. Uh, I'm the last year of Gen X. And... I just kind of feel like it's my job to go, hey, the next one's coming up. Can you just like chill? Just just chill (laughs) a little bit. You know what I mean? I don't want to take they took all the stuff. They screwed it all up. I'm just here going, you got to stop taking stuff and you got to stop wanting to kill people for taking stuff, you know? And if we don't, this is the Gen X moment, we need Gen X to rise up. We do. (laughs) (laughs) We do. I just don't know if they'll do it, but um, we do. We need to look the people your age. The the damn hippies have been a pain in my ass ever since I was a kid. (laughs) They came in. They were all about them. Me, 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 me. And they did whatever the hell they wanted. And everybody left in their wreckage behind. Then they got to power. They became the person that they said they hated the most. They took it all. They won't leave. They're so arrogant. They won't leave. The 90 years old and they're still up there. I'll tell you what we're going to do. What? (laughs) Everything you've done has left wreckage behind you. So your generation is a little pissed off if you even know what they took. You'll never know what America really was like because they destroyed it probably, you know, right after you were born is when this stuff really started to kick in. So you're pissed off. You're not going to get anything. And because those people who are almost dead took and destroyed everything. And now you're turning against me and clumping me with them. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Stop. Stop. Let's let's just have a discussion. This doesn't work anymore. This is the moment that Ronald Reagan said would come. 
if you keep going down this road, you're going to enter a time where there are no good options. None of them are good because you've burnt every bridge. Well, here we are. Now, how do we how do we hold ourselves together? How do we live? I hear this all the time. I can live with people. All I need. Can you give me give me eight of the Bill of Rights? Give me eight. OK, Maybe we can argue about guns and I don't know, quartering soldiers in your house. But can you give me eight of those if you can? OK, I can live next door to you. But if you can't give me the Bill of Rights, I, I don't know how to be in a country and run a country that is diametrically opposed to itself. Yeah. How do we fix that? How do we get there? This is the great existential question of the age, because, you know, this is the situation we're at. How do you have a self-government with people who literally don't agree on foundational on the foundational aspects of what it's like to live together? And the new right, I think, is trying to answer that question by saying we have to upend the left's march to the institutions. We have to decentralize all the power centers that have existed that allow one side of the ledger to tyrannize the other, because so, that is what what is happening right so now. So this is really and, this is what's happening at the EU right now. They've yeah. cobbled these countries. Well, we used to be like independent countries. Believe me, when I moved in Texas in 1982, it was a different country. OK, but. <laughs> We used to have pride in those individual countries, just like Europe did. And they're sick and tired of being told you're not special and you'll do what Germany says. And Greece, you'll have all that stuff paid for by whatever. It's not that they hate the other countries. They just want to be themselves. So are we seeing right. the dismantling of all of that at the same time we're seeing new framework that's even worse being built? Well, this is why I think the old solutions of, you know, that the old right says, well, just let federalism work, just let the market work. In theory, those things work when you don't have the other side trying to bludgeon you out of existence. Like they don't want, to your point, they don't want states to assert their own identities. Right. They don't want red states to be allowed to make decisions. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I read, this great piece a couple of years ago that talked about this phenomenon where, you know, it talks about how the left pushes you to the margins and then demonizes that spaces that space on the margins. Right. They're never going to leave you alone. Mm -hmm. They're never going to stop coming for you. And that's why I think it's if we want to get back to this radical federalism, which I think in the end is what's going to save us. If we want to get back to this radical constitutionalism, which we absolutely need, we need a right that is willing to go in and defend us, right? And use the government to dismantle the administrative state, to dismantle this massive, you know, corporate friendly tax code that has amassed so much power into these institutions that hate us and that have sold the American way of life out to China. We need to create a policy that 
supports communities so we can once again say local government can solve problems because our communities have been decimated. And yet we sit here and say, oh, the community, your neighbor should look out for our neighbors. Your neighbor strung out on opioids and lost his job mm -hmm. because he got shipped to China, mm -hmm. right? We have to have a policy that is defensive and offensive to push forward um, the, the way, the things that make life meaningful and sustainable in the United States. And right now we don't have that. The right over the last 30 years has allowed our public policy to decimate the things that we care about. We need a public policy that protects those things. And that's gonna mean renegotiating trade agreements. I, I have no, I, I don't wanna hear about multilateral trade anymore. I just mm. wanna hear about bilateral trade, mm. <laughs> you know, I, like frankly. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't want, I wanna hear more about rebuilding our manufacturing capacity, not through, you know, some sort of big statist, uh, you right. know, you know Ships management built. from Washington, right. Mm -hmm. But a tax code that actually supports and encourages and incentivizes companies to, to stay here. I want to see an immigration system that protects American workers. Because so much of what we're seeing, again, has been policy choices that we made. It's not just the market and the, the invisible hand. No, 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 no. We pushed ourselves down this road. Right. We have to haul, haul ourselves back, again, not to sort of dictate how people live from Washington, but to create the space and the conditions for families to flourish, so for middle-class workers to do well. You're seeing, you're seeing somebody create that space, and that's Ron DeSantis. I mean, mm -hmm. he is, I mean, I, I'm really... I'm kind of a disgruntled Texan because Florida's not supposed to lead the way. They got the mouse house. That's enough. That's all they get. We're supposed to you lead the FOMO. way. You have FOMO. You have FOMO about yes, Florida. Yes, yeah. I do. <laughs> um, and it, but if more governors would deal with things the way he is, that's why I'm, I support the, um, I think the last line of defense is our, um, is our attorney general's. And our sheriffs, the sheriff is supposed to be notified before the FBI can come in and kick down your door with a team. You know what I mean? What are you doing operating it? Back off. Um, the the banks are being investigated, not by a single person on Capitol Hill. But just this yeah. week, 19 attorney generals are calling all those banks and saying, what are you doing here with ESG? I mean, so can... Can the states do it if we shore up our states? Yeah, I think this has to be a multi-pronged project. You know, I want to get back, and this is what I mean where I say radical federalism, right? But I, I think it's naive to also think you can just simply do that, what Ron DeSantis is doing in a red state, and the, government, the federal government is not going to aggress against him. Oh, they yeah. will, right? So they, this is what I mean. They don't want to let you exist. Mm -hmm. And I think we have to, you know, our federal legislator, legislatures have to get control of that. And, you know, you look at the Department of Justice right now. Dobbs was overturned. Pro-lifers, you know, won a victory. And the Department of Justice responds by beginning to arrest mm -hmm. pro-life protesters for singing hymns outside an abortion clinic. So, you know, but I, so we have a, a two, a multi-pronged approach, I think, that we have to engage in. And I would actually add to your list, in, a, in addition to sheriffs and attorneys general, I would add state treasurers, I think, yes. have a big role to play. Yes. And if you, if you watch um, 
Riley Moore, who's the state treasurer of West Virginia, has been really creative and inventive in pushing back against ESG, forcing companies out of his state for trying to put the coal companies out of business. You know, I think there's a whole number of weapons and tools that state treasurers have available to. So the one thing that they have, um, they will have... um, just a whole bunch of new troops all the time because they control the education system. Right. Um, uh, I think the Department of Education needs to be abolished. Um, and Top of these, the list. <laughs> these teachers unions are the root of, of, a, of real evil as well. Um, how can, what do we have to do to be able to have fresh troops on the horizon? Well, I think this goes back to when we were talking about the corporate boardroom and sort of my thesis on the woke millennial middle management takeover that I think is really gonna threatens to tyrannize the corporate sector in like even new ways. That is the pipeline from the university system. Right, and all of these things that the right has ignored on the institutional side, the cultural institutions, the educational institutions, we have to be prepared to deal with that. And this goes back to my idea of why the new right has to divest and decentralize and defund. Mm -hmm. We need to start, the university system is a big part of that. Mm -hmm. Right, we have to, they benefit in myriad ways from our federal policy. Oh yeah. And our tax code and all these things like that, that. that, that has to be yanked out from under them because they have become far too powerful and they're pumping out, you know, it's, it was always this joke a couple of years ago, right, where it was like, oh, the gender studies majors, haha, wait until they're going to have to get a real job and then it'll right. disabuse them of all their crazy ideas. Well, but, you know what? That gender studies major is running your HR department now, right? Yep. So we have to pay attention to this pipeline. And I, frankly, I'm very comfortable with our federal policy addressing it the way I just described, yeah. which is yanking the benefits that they have from the tax code. And, and removing this ideological terror from the heights of our society, because this is where we train our elites, right? I loved, by the way, uh, Jim Ho, a federal judge on the Fifth Circuit, who said, I'm not gonna hire Yale Law School clerks anymore because yeah. these people are crazy. Yeah. <laughs> these people are, we need more of that. Yeah, we do. Right, we do. in addition to you know, cutting them off from the federal benefits, which I think would go a long way in cracking the hold they have on free thinkers running our country. Rachel, who are you meeting with? Who is there? A, please tell me there is a group of people like you that are meeting and pushing this uh, policy. I mean, I, I can't take the, the right and their think tanks anymore. I don't care what you think. What are you doing? What are you doing is is there anything like that that is really working and pushing forward this kind of questioning at this point? Yeah, it's it's been it's yes, I will say there there is a small bedraggled scrappy group of people trying to come up with what this looks like in policy and pushing it forward as an actual policy agenda because the last like 2 or 3 years this sort of new right national conservatism movement has been intellectual, right? It's been an intellectual ferment, I think, among the conservative right. But the problem is, okay, you know, we've won the argument now, I would say, we, you know, in many ways. What, how do you, what do you do now? How do you actually enact 
policy. And so that's the sort of next bleeding edge of this movement. And there's a number of us really iterating on this question. You know, I don't always agree with some of the solutions that people come up with. I think there's a danger. There's a danger, I think, for the new right to simply be sort of warmed over leftism. Mm -hmm. You know, that there's a danger, I think, also on the the other the flip side of that, there's a danger for the new right to simply be captured by to be sloganeering Mm -hmm. and simply be neoliberalism under the guise of MAGA or whatever. Right. So there really needs to be a focus on, you know, creatively addressing this moment while maintaining the sort of freedom and uh, sort of, again, radical constitutionalism that I think has to define it. So I think you the, the challenge is twofold. You have to come up with a policy agenda, but then you have to actually have leaders with the cojones to actually do it. And that's always a challenge, too. So I've never offered this to anybody ever before. But if you can get that scrappy ragtag team together (laughs) i would like to have you over at my house for dinner i i'd i'd love to host a dinner just to be a fly on the wall to listen to this conversation i think it is vital vital that we are having these conversations and thinking for the very first time in my life i mean i was a i was a reagan guy you know big government peace through strength all that Get the hell out of all of these things. Stop mm-hmm. telling the rest of the world what to do. Enough. Yes. Enough. And there are a lot of conservatives that are no longer, they used to be, but they've seen the results of it. How many times do we have to learn this lesson? It doesn't work. And there's a laundry list of those things. And somebody who begins to articulate those things, it will catch on quickly. So anything I can do to help you and others, please let me know. Oh, that's so gracious and amazing. And we will take you up on it. Okay, good. <laughs> I hope we talk again. We're not very. Yeah, I would love to. I would love to. We all we need friends in this moment we more do. than ever. And they will prove to be strange bedfellows a lot of times. But as long as they um, as long as they're not advocating violence or um, revenge, they're a friend of mine. They're a friend of mine. Here, here. Thank you. God bless. Thanks, Glenn. Just a reminder, I'd love you to rate and subscribe to the podcast and pass this on to a friend so it can be discovered by other people. 